Critical Care Practitioner Podcast number 19. Welcome to another episode of Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. My name is Jonathan Downham and this is the podcast to inform, debate and discuss all things critical care, wherever in your hospital that might be. Get ready. Hi, this is Ken Spearpoint. I'm a consultant nursing resuscitation and principal lecturer in medical simulation. And you are listening to the Critical Care Practitioner Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. This is episode number 19 now. We're nearly up to 20, which is fabulous. Um, Carrying on making these, interviewing lots of people, talking to lots of individuals, networking around the world, all good reasons to carry on. So really enjoying myself, and I hope you're continuing to enjoy them too. I am having a fabulously busy time at the moment. My new job in the emergency department is keeping me really, really busy. I go to work for 12 hours, and presented with lots of different conditions uh, that I have not encountered before, not in any great depth anyway, and I'm having to learn an awful lot. So my learning curve is not, well, it isn't a curve anymore. It's actually a steep and uh, difficult to climb, climb cliff. As a consequence, what am I doing? I'm doing lots of different things to try and help with my learning. I've started on my website something called the Trainee Clinical Practitioner Diary which I'm trying to update every time I do a shift with some of the things that I've learnt. Uh, my theory, my uh, attitude has always been that uh, as I learn, you can learn too. So it's good revision for me. Uh, it makes me think about it. I, the last ones I did, which was trainee clinical practitioner number 10, I did a couple of uh, chalk and talk things. Uh, it was a new approach for me, um, just uh, with a bit of computer software, uh, wrote some stuff down. Um, go and have a look at it if, if you think it's useful um, I'm sure um, some of you might benefit from it I certainly do so that's my approach this week we and we are a little bit late unfortunately sorry about that but that is kind of a reflection of my current post that I am very very busy but this week this is a, an interview what well, not really an interview it's a chat with uh, Gavin Denton and myself Gavin Denton if you don't know him is a critical care practitioner at the Heart of England Hospital in Birmingham and he and I decided we were going to pull apart a piece of research and try and understand it a little better. I've got to be honest it's one of my weak areas um, is understanding the ins and outs of some of the research papers that I read Um, so this is um, going some way towards my efforts to try and help me understand that so we pick it apart. The article in question is the high versus low blood pressure target in patients with septic shock published by Asfar et al., which is a French group. Um, it's otherwise known as the Sepsis-PAM investigators. And this was really, as it reads, to see what the effects of targeting a lower blood pressure versus a higher blood pressure is in those patients with septic shock to see what effect it would have um, on things like mortality. But we go into that in the article, myself and Gav. Have a listen, let me know what you think, and I'll speak to you again at the end. I read the um, blood pressure paper last night 
I've done a CASP tool on the systematic review. We've lost me already. What's what's a CASP? What's a CASP, CASP tool? So it's something I used on my Eureka module. It is a way of a systematic way of critically appraising papers. CASP hyphen UK dot net. Basically, yeah, I got that. Basically, it's from um, Oxford, I think it's Oxford University. I'm not too sure. And what that is is that there's about six tools and you can apply it to a diagnostic test or a meta-analysis. Yeah, we've got, I'm just looking at it now, we've got systematic review, randomised controlled trial, diagnostic checklist, economic evaluation, clinical prediction rule, cohort study, case control and quality checklist. That's useful actually, I didn't know that existed. I I applied that, I've just done my Eureka using one of those. There's another organisation... I can't remember which university. It's one of the big, big old red brick unis. I can't remember which one it is. Um, and they they have a, a similar group of checklists. Um, but when I was working out of Warwick, it's CASP that they suggested be used. But this other organisation, which I think is the evidence-based medicine, I think it runs out of Cambridge. And that they have a, a similar list. But it was um, CASP that Warwick um, suggested um, we use. And they and they've got a whole selection of checklists as well, um, which are essentially the same, to be honest. Right. So we've got the websites just to let people know, because um, the first website is www.casp-uk.net, and then the second one we're talking about is www.cebm.net. So that's Charlie Echo Bravo Mike.net. So under the title you've got there, Critical Appraisal Worksheets, again, you've got a series of um, checklists you can use depending on what kind of study you're looking at. Yeah. So again, we've got systematic review, diagnosis, prognosis and therapy. So this checklist has got um, 11 questions. Yeah. Uh, and the first question is, did the trial address a clearly focused issue? So flicking through, come on, coming off the abstract, study design... The first issue in, in most of these critical evaluation um, checklists is whether the trial or study or whatever the nature is that you're looking at has asked a clearly focused question. So that it's neither too specific or neither too general. So this one is essentially saying that they've done, so it's an open labelled study, they've used to okay, stop there, stop there, stop there. Open label. <laughs> Let's tell people what open label means. So open label trial is uh, a type of clinical trial in which both the researchers and participants know which treatment is being administered. So that contrasts with a single blind and double blind experimental designs where participants are not aware of what treatment they are receiving. Uh, researchers are also unaware in a double blind trial. So in a single blind trial, the, the participants don't know what they're getting, but presumably the researchers do. A double blind trial neither the participants nor the researchers know what that's that's when we get drugs that have labels stuck over them isn't it when we get them from uh from pharmacy or whatever but an open label or uh, open label trial or open trial um participants and researchers know which treatment is being administered so that's uh that's fairly open isn't it okay and i would imagine that that is probably one of the things that will introduce potential bias at some point isn't it so that might be a weakness of the study yeah i I mean this kind of study it it would be essentially impossible to blind what this study will come down to is a a, a targeted blood pressure um yeah. basically for patients requiring antropic support you've got yeah. shock unresponsive to fluid so obviously you can't target a blood pressure 
into a specific range if you don't know what it is. So it's yeah. in, in, in this particular context, it would be impossible to blind. It's an appropriate um, methodology in the context of this specific study. Yeah, and I would imagine as well that um, you can't affect somebody's blood pressure if you're not absolutely sure what drug you're giving, can you? You know, you can't titrate it if you don't know the drug or the dose. But no, no. And presumably in a blinded trial, you just have a syringe with uh, an unknown fluid in it. And, you know, how are you going to work out what mics per kilo to give yeah. somebody if you don't actually know what's in that syringe? Um, I mean, essentially, in this trial, our drug is the blood pressure. So we're using drug A, which is the blood pressure from 70 to 70, sorry, 65 to 70 map. And, yeah. and then drug B is a map of 80 to 85 yeah. Um, and and th- those are our um, drugs in this particular case. Yeah. And just to um, go back a point as well, because I don't want to skip over these things. It's a multi-center, randomized, stratified, open label trial. I've just looked at stratified because that's another term that um, I'm not that familiar with. So I'll be perfectly honest. A lot of this is from Wikipedia. Let's be uh, upfront about that. But Wikipedia says that stratified random sampling designs divide the population into homogeneous strata and homogeneous strata if i know rightly is that you try and get a, a, a similar population um, and an appropriate number of participants are chosen at random from each strata so um, it's about um, dividing them up appropriately and making sure that you get a good same mix almost population do you think is that right am i interpreting yeah, that okay. right and how that seems to fit into into this particular study is that both groups were essentially the same they were equally matched in terms of their demographics and disease process and age um, the way they stratified them was looking at um, whether the patients had a history of hypertension or not mm-hmm. so what they made they did was randomly allocated equal numbers of patients with a history of hypertension to both groups yeah so basically you've got a 50 50 distribution of hypertension between the high and the low map target group yeah um which was particularly key in this study um, as we'll come to the findings a little bit later on because that that was the key area where there was difference Yeah. So we're still on here. Did the trial address a clearly focused issue? So the issue really is is whether uh, a mean arterial pressure of 80 to 85 millimeters of mercury would decrease 28 day mortality um, as compared to targeting a mean arterial pressure of 65 to 70. So in other words, if we uh, target a higher mean, uh, will that kill more patients than if we targeted a lower mean? I think that summarises it nicely, yeah. doesn't it? I, I yeah. mean, the, the other thing that I really take out from um, their question here is that they've focused on what people often coin um, a patient-orientated goal, so which essentially in this case is mortality. So we haven't decided, okay, um, we're going to see if it makes a difference to creatinine. Does it mean that their white cell count comes down faster, uh, just just metaphorically? Um, yeah. It's specifically about the thing that actually matters. Does the patient live or die? Um, yeah. and, and that's what's t- um, meant when um, people are talking about patient-orientated goals as opposed, as opposed to a physiological-orientated goal. 
And I suppose things like um, creatinine, to use your example, would when you start looking for markers for disease then, isn't it? And then yeah. they start going into things like surrogate markers and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So hopefully we'll get into that at some point on one study. But I don't think that's going to rear its ugly head on this one. It will, actually. <laughs> oh, will it? Oh, OK. All right. Fair one, of the key, one of the key differences was... Um, oh, it's, ki- it's kidney injury, isn't yeah. it? They talk about kidney yeah. injury, don't they, in hypertensive patients. Yeah. yeah. OK. Can you just do it? Yeah, that's just what I was going to ask you to do. Just scroll the patient up a bit because we need to see as well uh, whether they clearly focus, it's clearly focused issue regarding intervention and comparator. So... Um, they go on to do the methods later, which looks like um, is the next screen of the study design. And it's a French design, um, which, you know, we'll have to forgive them. Presumably they've got some vague idea what they, they know what they're doing, even if they are French. Um, that's all about informed consent, blah, blah, blah. Randomization. Um, they talk about randomization, the fact that it's computer generated assignment, centralized, blinded fashion, and was stratified. And we talked about stratification. And what I want to do on the podcast as well is I'm going to try and link up uh, all the links to these things. Every page that we open up today, I'm going to stick a, a link on the um I hate to call them this, but I'm afraid everyone calls them show notes. So on the on the show notes for the podcast, it makes oh, it sound so, like I'm, so MCRIT, isn't it? And I, it, make, it it makes it sound like I'm sitting in some huge studio as well. You know that I'm not actually sitting in my downstairs toilet with my head against the cistern. You know, in your lingerie. Yeah. <laughs> Going back up to the, this section on the study design. Um, one of the important things in this particular study is that it's a multi-center study. Yeah. Now, one of the things that's happened through 2000, particularly regarding critical care, is that we've had several seminal studies come through, which had been major practice changes in terms of, uh, and particularly in centres that tend to be um, early responders to, to new research, which our trust generally is. Um, yeah. But these these studies ended up being um, single centre studies, which weren't necessarily um, studies that could be extrapolated to the wider wider population. Yeah, you, so I mean, Vandenberg's um, insulin study, which was done in um, uh, was it Brazil? I can't remember. I don't know. You're going to have to send me the link. <laughs> you, so the, you've the, mentioned it I now, so we have sure to send the I link. The right name because I'm just doing this from man, memory. But the, it, you can't just name people at random. You know? <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to try and get it reasonably. So, so, so essentially, the the, um, the the big insulin study that was done in intensive care, looking at um, rates of sepsis with tight, tight insulin control, um, was essentially a single centre study, which was never ever replicated when it was done on a multi centre basis. So this is a multi centre study. So you, your population is likely to be more representative. Um, you're more likely to be able to extrapolate the findings to other populations in other countries, and you're less likely to get bias or a situation where one particular centre was very, very good at a particular process and therefore had um, outcomes that were different from other centres. So it, it, it increases its validity and its reliability and your ability to apply and their its generalizability yeah. as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and your ability to apply it to other, other centres. Right, you, you just mentioned two other terms which we're going to have to talk about at some point, which is validity and um and the other one i mean i i often use them interchangeably not necessarily being that specific on what the two differences are well hang on we're going to do that now then. <laughs> why not validity and reliability 
I'm going to have some serious editing to do for this episode. <laughs> right, so validity is the extent to which a concept, conclusion or measurement is well-founded and corresponds accurately to the real world, okay? So in other words, is the test we've done, is it going to be, does it actually relate to the real world or have we done a test on bunny rabbits when in fact we're going to be giving the drug to, I don't know, blue whales or something, presumably? Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that people will quite happily write to me and correct me if I'm saying this wrong because that is the whole point of this. I am not an expert in this at all, but I'm going through this process to try and make myself a bit more informed than I was. And reliability. Uh, reliability is the overall consistency of a measure. A measure is said to have high reliability if it produces similar results under consistent conditions. So in other words, validity is about whether it's actually the results are going to be valid in the real world and can we apply them to the real world rather than just this study we've done. And reliability is about whether this test we've done, the, the research paper we've done, if we were to do it again, would it produce the same or similar results? So I think that, that summarises both of those, doesn't it? I think that pretty much covers most of the stuff which is in the um, focus question I mean the, the other thing that sometimes come up which isn't stated on here is whether the trial trial title and the outcomes were registered I don't recall the the name of the organization but there's a way of that there is an international trial registry whereby you can um, before you start your study you can actually register what your primary outcomes are going to be and by primary outcome. Is that Prospero or is that systematic reviews? This is, I think this is essentially for any, for any study. I don't, I don't recall the name of the organisation, what the trial registry is called. But I mean, if you typed in trial registry, you should be able to find it fairly, fairly simply. And basically the, the idea is that the title of your paper that's eventually published and the outcomes, that, the primary outcomes that you stated remain those that you initially registered. Because a, a, a typical trick that seems to be employed, particularly when it's involving drugs, is that the primary outcome gets changed halfway through the study, usually uh -huh. because they work out that the drug doesn't work. So they switch mortality to, say, increasing cardiac output instead. So you, yeah. you, you, you switch your patient-centered outcome to a physiological outcome which might yeah. not actually mean anything in the real world. And the fact that that has changed, it should be a really big red flag. Um, yeah. So um, it doesn't actually state that in this. The one question I can't see, uh, because it says um, in the CASP paper, did the uh, is the intervention given? Um, and I can't see that they've mentioned an intervention yet. If you read the paper up to this point, you wouldn't actually know well, what they the were planning on doing. The intervention in this case is the blood pressure range. Um, well, that's that's the result rather than the intervention. No, is it no, surely that, the intervention no, is the drug we're giving, isn't it? No, the, 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 this study is about um, achieving a, a blood pressure range. Um, in this study, they used um, noradrenaline and potentially adrenaline as well, but primarily noradrenaline. It's not okay. about that drug. It's about achieving that blood pressure or, okay, cool. or, or mean arterial pressure. That that okay. That is the treatment. Was the assignments of patients to treatments randomised? I think we've discussed that already, yeah. haven't we? They've done this um, computerised, stratified, yeah. blinded randomization, getting down to were all the patients who entered the trial properly accounted for at its conclusion? Was the trial stopped early? And were patients analysed in the groups to which they were randomised? I think we need to look later on for that, don't we? We haven't quite got there yet on this paper. I think that's going to come up a bit later. Yeah, I mean... 
I mean, if you, if you look at what I've got up at the moment, the study oversight, so um, they, they plan to have an interim analysis. So they were aiming for... Prefer, it doesn't say. I've not seen any power or uh, anything okay, like that. That probably comes a, a later. I think they, they aim for around 800 patients, so they will, will get back into that. So, okay. so they were planning for an interim analysis. So they were at various stages, as they developed their population, they would um, cont- continue to look at whether there was a difference between the two. So one, if they start to go, go towards the end of the study... They haven't achieved their numbers yet, but there's no statistical difference. They might stop the study early because it's not working, and it's clear that it's not working. Um, on the flip side, if it's clearly de- demonstrable before they've achieved their target number of patients that there's harm, again, they will ethically they will have to stop her. There's no real statement in there to say w- whether there was an issue doing their interim analysis. It pretty much just goes through to its conclusion. Next question, were patients, health workers and study personnel blinded to treatment? I think ultimately no, because it was open label, wasn't yeah. it? So but they, the, but the then they've made clear that, that they are open label. Yeah. yeah, and they had justification for doing so, yeah. didn't they? It's not like we've done it because we can't be asked to blind it. We've done it because there's, there's good reason. So the study patients, the inclusion criteria, can you see that anywhere? Uh, so inclusion. study patients I've, I've got up there now. So patients older than 18, which is pretty typical in an adult study, they had to require um, vasopressors at a minimum rate and and they had to um, be put into the study within, I think, six hours of starting their, their um, vasopressor or inotrope. And I think being refractory to fluid resuscitation, they've mentioned that a couple of times, haven't they? So yeah. in other words... Um, for anyone who doesn't understand what refractory to something means, it means that you give them the fluid and that they have no response to it. So in other words, you 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 poured as much fluid in as you dare and nothing's happening. So you've got to now go down the vasopressor line. And they talk about norepinephrine or, or epinephrine. So the good old Americans um, don't use the right terminology again. But so we're talking about noradrenaline uh, and I, I think it's adrenaline, isn't it? The equivalent. Yeah, I think the majority of this was done with. Um, I think it comes back up in the data later on, but I think the majority of this was on the adrenaline yeah and they they define refractoriness to fluid resuscitation as a lack of response to the administration of 30 mils of normal saline per kilo which is a fairly standard uh, resuscitation dose for somebody who's presenting with um septic shock yeah, as well i, I so, mean the 30 mils per kilo essentially comes from the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines now doesn't it so great the the amount of fluids we're going to be giving people i think uh, just as an aside is going to change in the next couple of years i think there's, there's going to be big changes yeah. there but and the way that we uh, we measure them. I mean, a lot, a lot of the inclusion criteria of how they've divine, defined sepsis and septic shocks essentially come from the Survivor Sepsis campaign. So we, are, we probably don't need to go into that. So they've got two or more um, criteria for surge stroke sepsis. They've then yeah. developed shock and shock unresponsive to fluids. And that's essentially your, your patient study group. And for those people out there that don't know what SIRS means, systemic inflammatory response um, syndrome, um, and there are specific categories for this that have been defined quite clearly the surviving sepsis mentions them several times i'm not going to go into details now but if you want to go onto the internet and typing um sirs uh, criteria and you know i think there's five or six points that talk about white cell and raised temperature and, and all that kind of stuff so it's worth looking at anyway go on so have we finished that question Question four, yeah, yeah uh, so that was covered. Groups similar at the start, and we talked about that. Were the groups similar at the start of the trial? 
So, so the significance of this is essentially if you're going to have um, a, a treatment group and a control group or different arms, you need to be confident that the demographics of that group, their disease pathology, the severity of their disease pathology is essentially the same. Um, so you, you're not seeing differences in outcome because you've got differences in their demographics as opposed to the actual treatment itself. So you want to m- remove those confounders. So um, a confounding variable um, is basically um, something from um, outside of the model that's going to affect either or both the dependent and the independent variable. So the thing you're testing and the thing you're testing with, so the drug you're giving and the response you're going to get. So it's it's something that might just skew your data. I think that's probably, yeah. is that reasonable yeah, to say? Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. Okay. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about was, because you were saying that the population need to be similar, and I think that's the word, where the word homogenous will come in, because you talk about homogenous data and heterogeneous data. And homogenous data is or homogenous groups are things that all are all of a similar kind so i think the question is asking basically are they uh, are they an homogenous group um and i think um the answer is probably yes they are here because they've made some effort to make them so haven't they they enrolled the best part of around 800 patients um and monitored them monitored them for uh, 80 days 90, it says so, here. So, I'm 90, not 90 that. days. So I'm yeah. just looking at the study population section and the results at the moment. The distribution between the two um, MAP treatment levels was pretty much the same. The other aspect in which they were matched, they looked at the SAP score and the SOFA score. Um, and the SAPS is the Simplified Acute Physiology Score and the SOFA score is the Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score. Yeah. Not, not going to talk about those no. now, but just as a mental reminder, that's perhaps something we need to cover at some future point just to talk about um, those because they will come up an awful lot in research, yeah, right? especially critical care I research. mean, the, the important thing to note about them, whether they use that or whether they use a, a, another term you're going to hear is Apache 2 or Apache 3, is that it's a way of quantifying the severity of your illness and the higher the score, the, the more disease you have and the more likely you are to die. So yeah. what they'll tend to do in these studies is try and make sure that the SAP score, the SOFA score, or the, or, or um, the oh, I can't remember the other one, that they're, that they're actually equal in both groups again. So, yeah. you, so you're matching those patients' demographics together. Um, yeah. And I don't think they showed any statistical difference between um, those. Statistical distant, uh, difference, um, again, is not something we can go into too much depth here. But it's all very well saying that there are a difference between two values, but you've got to prove there's a statistical difference between two values. Because ultimately, you know, if I don't know, if I if I fill a bottle with what I think is 50 mils of water and one's got 55 mils of water and one's got 50 one mils of water is that a statistical difference and there's various mathematics you would have to go through to prove it was a statistical difference um, in other words it hasn't occurred just by chance um, and i think that's the important thing that's where the p-value comes in doesn't yeah. it and the p-value i struggled to remember this initially but now i've found an easy way of remembering it is the p-value if it's less than zero uh, 0.05 or if it's zero point point zero five or less then that is probably a statistical difference and what that means is that there is a 95 percent chance or greater that that ch- that hasn't occurred by chance that statistical difference yes. is that right is that, am i understanding it's, that right there's two ways that you can look at it which i haven't got very clear in my head so you could say there's a f- you could say there's a five percent chance that it occurred by accident you're finding yeah. 
The, okay. the, the other way you can look at it is with confidence interval. So confidence... Uh, now, now, stop, 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 stop. <laughs> I don't want to talk about confidence intervals in this one because I think confidence intervals is a whole new episode. So aside from the experimental intervention, were the groups treated equally? What's that asking is that, yes, we've provided a treatment for the, for uh, ascribed a treatment for each group, but did they actually get it? And did they get it at the same rate? And I, I believe in this study... The two map ranges that were ascribed, the 60, oh, I can't remember what the map ranges were now. I'll go back a little bit. 80 to 85 and 60 to 65, I think. 65 to 70 and 80 to 85. So in in both groups, they went over their target. So I think their their average um, maps were higher than 65 to 70 and 80 to 85. But there was still there was still uh, a delineated line between the two groups, so there were a little. So the maps were a little bit higher um, than the actual target range in both groups, but there was still a clear delineation between them. What are the results? How large was the treatment effect? What outcomes were measured? Is the primary outcome clearly specified? What results were found for each outcome? What is the primary outcome here? Because I'm not very clear on that. The well, primary outcome mortality. is. is yeah, of course it is. Yeah, it's a twenty-eight day mortality, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and and they looked at. Uh, I think their, their secondary one was nine, ninety days, so they're looking at a short term mortality and a longer term mortality. And what they found um, in terms of the difference between the two groups was a p value of point seven four. Right. Uh, okay. So point seven four, from my understanding, means that it's not clinically significant. Yeah, so there was no difference between your whether you lived or died based on whether which um, target mean arterial pressure that you were given. Okay. It didn't make any difference to whether you lived or died. Okay. So the, the first question that occurred to me when I read that and um, is, if, if it makes no difference, why are we then saying that, that the, the lower pressure range is, is a better pressure range to have? Well, the, the lower pressure range is the target that is suggested in the surviving sepsis campaign. Historically and traditionally, and I think we, we both see this in our own practice and we probably do it ourselves, is that um, looking after, for what the most part is with our patients, very comorbid patients, many with cardiovascular disease, many coming in with a background of um, hypertension and requiring um antihypertensive medication is our concern is these patients might um, require a higher map to maintain yeah. adequate organ perfusion and that, that's something that certainly is done in practice we know that so th- this is actually trying to put it into a study to actually um, show empirically whether there is a difference or not which this clearly shows in a multi-center study that was randomized that there, there is no difference in um, mortality um, when you apply two different levels of MAP. Now, going back to how they stratified patients, um, if you recall, that they, they made sure they had equal groups of patients with hypertension in both the treatment arms. Yeah, yeah. And what they did find is that the creatinine was significantly lower in patients that were given a higher MAP. When okay, they, what was the p-value there? Can you remember? Can uh, you see? Let me just cycle through. So they they had a p-value of of um, zero point zero nine for the creatinine level between the two groups. Only when they looked at whether they had a background of hypertension, 
But this kind of comes around full circle. So our concern was always that patients with a history of hypertension might require a higher MAP to maintain their renal perfusion. And this seems to suggest that that is the case, that yeah. there is a statistical significant difference when you have a history of hypertension if you actually treat them with a higher MAP. And they also found that there's a, that a higher need for renal replacement. Um, there was a difference in the need for renal replacement therapy between the two groups, although the significant the statistical significance wasn't quite so high um but it was still significant so in so, in some respects it tells us what logically we tend to do is that patients with a background of hypertension we tend to aim for a higher map and yeah. suggest that 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 is appropriate in that context yeah absolutely so okay um the, the reason i pause there is because i was actually i've just seen another term multivariate logistic re regression analysis which kind of <laughs> Scares the bejesus out of me, quite frankly. Yeah, but my, um, but, uh, my friend Wiki. At that point. <laughs> yeah, my, my friend Wiki says logistic regression measures the relationship between a categorical dependent variable and one or more independent variables, which are usually but not necessarily continuous by using probability scores. So I think what that means, because the, the, the context it's in in this document, is that with the creatinine and the p-value they get, they say multivariate logistic regression analysis indicated that none of the potentially nephrotoxic therapies influenced this result. And the logistic regression analysis talks about um, the dependent variables being affected by one or more independent variables and presumably the independent variables here would be the potentially nephrotoxic therapies so they've tried it what they're saying is that even if you take those into account it doesn't affect the overall result so anything that we give that might knock the kidneys is not actually affecting the overall result am i reading that right yeah, do you think yeah yeah um and that's essentially the crux of the study Obviously, yeah. the rest is their their discussion and their interpretation of what it all means let me go back to the CAFS questions if we, if we finish that question and is there any more yeah i think so um we've got the results for, results for each out, outcome did they get the 90 day results at all do they comment um, on that anywhere i don't think there, there was a difference there either because he had 28 days yeah 90 days there was also no significant significant between group difference in mortality at 90 days okay that's fine so in other words it doesn't matter if it's 28 or 90 days it makes no difference question eight on the CASP paper says how precise was the estimate of the treatment effect what are the confidence limits and and i ain't gonna go there on this one yeah, i mean this doesn't actually present confidence intervals for that as far as, oh, as, far as i love studies that don't present confidence <laughs> intervals because they just when we, it's, and it's, i'll tell you about it and it's, it's far simpler than they think it is you you tweeted one the other day wasn't it likelihood ratios yeah. and i was cursing you under my breath i thought bloody hell gavin we've got enough to talk about without talking about likelihood <laughs> ratios as well but i tell you i tell you what and this is something that um the audience need to be aware of the i've just come across i don't know if you've uh, seen statistics 101 on youtube no i haven't Go and look at it. It's brilliant. I've just started watching it about null and alternative hypotheses. Um, and I thought I knew what a hypothesis was until I watched. And they're really, really easy to watch. They're very clear. He starts from a very basic level and works your way up. So he's not blinding you with um, statistical science. He's very, very nice to listen to. And the other one, I think, is the one that you recommended to me 
was Terry Shaneyfelt, who is, talks about what our likelihood ratios. And again, I'm going to put both these links in the, the show notes at the bottom. And I'm, I've linked to both of them down my links on the web page anyway. And they are both absolutely excellent. If you've got, you know, gajillions of hours to spare in between childcare and going to work, <laughs> I, I think these are possibly the ones that you should be watching. But have they said anything in summary that just kind of might? Yeah, let's just talk about in conclusion among patients with septic shock. 28-day and 90-day mortality did not differ significantly between those who were treated to reach a target mean arterial pressure of 80 to 85 millimetres and those who were treated to reach a target of 65 to 70. So ultimately what that means is that if you target the higher pressure because you're worried about um, them them having the lower pressure for whatever reason, it doesn't make any difference to their long-term mortality. So actually, unless we're talking about people with who are previously unknown hypertensive or have some re- some element of kidney failure and correct me if you think i'm wrong here then there's no reason to actually treat them to the higher pressure and it changed my treatment because now when nurses come up to me and say what am i aiming for to me my standard i look at to see what their kidneys are doing i look to see if anyone's written that they were previously hypertensive if they weren't i say 65 yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly my practice as well i mean what this despite the improved creatinine in the hypertensive patients in the higher map target they didn't actually show a mortality difference or they just certainly didn't look at it in this but that wasn't part of their outcome aim. So I think probably the next study that's probably going to have to come come on from this is um, two blood pressure targets for people who specifically have hypertension um, to yes. see whether in a larger study, specifically looking at that group, whether that um, uh, can impact on mortality. We know that patients that end up on um, RRT are more likely to die. They have across the board probably the, the mortality rate from um, ARF in ITU is probably about 50%. If we can show that a higher MAP in those patients reduces the need for, uh, for renal replacement therapy, that might actually be a group where um, there might be a mortality benefit. And that's certainly probably the next study that needs to come on from this. Yeah. Okay. Right. Let's stop rattling on. It's been brilliant, Gav. I'm gonna. Do, we're gonna do this Wasn't again. Wasn't as painful as I thought. It's all right, isn't it? It's just like having. It's just you could be sitting next to me, and we could yeah. be having a conversation. Yeah. You know, it's you. Do, you actually you find yourself forgetting that you're recording it, and you know, a few hundred people are going to end up listening to it. But that's fine as well. And, and I will edit some of it. Out. I want to keep some of the humour in it though, because I think it's nice for people to listen that we're just having a chat, and it's not dry and dull and boring and you know um we'll all be we'll become international superstars eventually you and i mate on the back of this so don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> all right buddy i'm going okay. now all right have a nice weekend see you around mate thanks very all much right. smack us chicago june 23rd to 26th 2015 Nixon, Flower, Weingart, May, Rohi, Malimat, Levitan, Reed, Carly, Rogers. Got the date? June 23rd to 26th, 2015. Smack US. Chicago. Book it now. Yep. And the tickets have been released for Smack US now, for Smack next year. So wish I could be there. Not going to be able to make it, unfortunately. But it's going to be a fabulous, fabulous 
event um, I've seen the agenda you can go to the website have a look looks brilliant if you can get there then you just need to be there um, that's it really not much else to say to you this week uh, been very busy as I say I a couple of other things I've started to try and put together a newsletter which I'm going to try and release once a month uh, for uh, emergency medicine research pieces if any of you subscribe to Rob McSweeney's, which is the critical care newsletter, he does a fabulous job on a weekly basis, I believe, of releasing the latest pieces of research. I can't commit to weekly, unfortunately. I, I don't have the time or the resources to do it. I don't know how Rob manages to do it, but he does it and he does it very well. I'm going to try a smaller version, so I'll be releasing one once a month, just some of the latest pieces of research a lot of them going to be abstracts unfortunately because obviously I don't have the um, wherewithal and the facilities to be publishing full text and if you don't have the means to pay for those full text then there's probably not much point pointing you in those directions because copyright won't let me so it'll be a lot of abstracts there are some full text documents and where there are full text I'll try and release them my other newsletter, which I do regularly from my website, is getting quite a few subscribers now. If you want to keep in touch with me regularly, I try and send that one out every couple of weeks. Then go to the website, criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, and come and subscribe. And I'll try and keep in touch with you and just keep you up to date with new items on my website, new podcasts I've made. I've got another few exciting ones coming up. I'm hoping to speak to Ollie Flower sometime this week about Smack next year, so he can give us a few more details and we can have a chat. I have spoken with Teresa Chin again from We Nurses and that's an episode that's ready to be released. Uh, and I'm looking forward to a Christmas one which is a bit special but um, I'll wait for you uh, to find that out for yourself when it's released. Hope you're all having a good time. I certainly am. Speak to you again soon. Bye bye. <laughs>